Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians? Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1, and we are con- uh, continuing in our series, um, Praying Like Paul. And uh, as we get a chance to look at Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11, but I'm going to be focusing much on verses 9 through 11. That's his prayer, the content of his prayer. Uh, you'll hear it, and it'll sound kind of familiar because it'll sound like what Pastor uh, Doug preached on uh, a couple of weeks ago um, from Colossians chapter 1. And it's, it's Paul's heart. And some of the exact same themes that he prayed for the Colossian believers, he is praying for the Philippian believers, and we should be praying for ourselves in this congregation. So would you look with me here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be able to approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. Lord, we pray this morning as we, as we look through Paul's opening of this letter, and as we look at the content of his prayer, Lord, help us to see your glory. Help us to be so overwhelmed by grace, You offer common grace to all of humanity, Father. Grace, you reign down on the righteous and the unrighteous, but you offer a a special type of grace for those that are part of your family, a saving grace, a sanctifying grace, and ultimately a glorifying grace, Lord. We praise you for that. We thank you for the peace that you give us, Lord. We are at peace with you if we are in Christ. The war is over, Lord. There is no condemnation ever again. We praise you for that. But you also tell us that we can have the peace of God in our lives. So I pray that we become a community of believers that are are so focused on the gospel, so focused on partnership in the gospel, so focused on the fact that you're the finishing one, who you do the finishing work in our lives. Father, help us to grow in a deep level of love, And help us to have discernible fruit in our lives so that we can bring glory and praise and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was thinking, um, titled the message, A Prayer for Spiritual or Christian Maturity. And I was thinking about uh, churches today. And there are, there are different types of churches, right? There are um, some churches that are heavy on theology, heavy on doctrine, uh, but they're really light on love and grace. And, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot, but you don't feel very connected to that group. And then there, then there are some churches where they're really heavy on love and grace, and you just can sense that freedom and, and the forgiveness and the relationship in that community, but they're light on doctrine and in truth. And Jesus was called a man full of grace and truth. 
It's not an either or. It has to be a both and. That, that to be a thriving and a spiritually mature believer or community, we need to be growing in grace and in discernible love, and we need to be practicing truth in our lives, which is going to come out in fruitfulness. By doing that, this community becomes a community that is going to reflect God and offer gro- glory to God and praise for his name. So, so this morning, I want you to consider what is spiritual maturity? I think it takes on three elements. Um, it takes on the fact of what you're thinking about, thinking frequently about the gospel. It is feeling deeply for Christ and others, and then it is acting in a certain way. It's thinking, it's feeling, it's acting. It's the way our lives go. And what Paul is saying, even in this section, he talks about, I thought deeply about you. I think frequently about you. You come into my mind constantly. And then he said, I feel so deeply for you. And then he talked about the fact that he prays earnestly for them. I pray that that would be our focus this morning. So look with me here at verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is that he is thinking frequently about them. I wonder what dominates your mind. You know, part of my job as a counselor is to help people to try to unearth their behaviors and their feelings and get down to the thoughts, to get down to the real heart of the matter. So what, what dominates your mind? You know, a number of people really honestly don't think deeply and frequently and positively about other people. And so when you don't think frequently and deeply and positively about other people, then what are you going to feel? You're not going to feel positively about those people. Your feelings are always going to follow what you tend to think about. They're always going to follow what, you, uh, dom- what dominates your mind. Well, what we see in Paul was what dominated his mind, his beliefs, his convictions, his values were these people and Christ. That he saw God in them. He says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Can you imagine that? What would it be like for you to sit down and think about even somebody in this community that you're struggling with and you actually say, you know what, I am thinking about them constantly because of the gospel of God and what God has done in my life and what I want, what God wants to do through my life. Over and over, you'll see these elements in this prayer. Paul is talking about there's a frequency of his thanksgiving. He says, I am doing this always. I would challenge you, for those that that struggle in relationships with others, what is it that you think about deeply? What is it that you think about frequently? Do you think positively about people? And is your frequency of your thought in thanksgiving always? But then he says, not only that, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine. You hear the, uh, the extremes here. Always in every prayer of mine, For you who ask, all. See, it wasn't just the frequency of his prayer. It was the fact that he prayed for the congregation. He prayed for the group. There were some people in there that he probably got along with better. They had similar personalities, but there were others that were not similar in personality. But what he did was this. He prayed for them all. He had this focus, and the focus was if God can save this congregation of believers and that you're all my brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be my passionate desire to pray for you all. Well, that was Paul's prayer. He says, I think so frequently about you. Um, Jerry Bridges has this phrase. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. 
And in this, he is talking about that every day we should be thinking frequently about what Christ has done for us. That I, God is holy, I am sinful, Christ lived righteous for me, he lived for me, he died for me, he rose victorious for me, and I am in him. And if you think deeply and frequently about that, that's going to move to the second thing in verses following. It's going to lead to your feeling deeply for him. Well, what he said is this. He said um, in verse 5, your partnership. Why was he focused on their love and why was he thinking often of them? Because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You've been with me in this partnership. You've been here. We're linked together in a relationship. This community of believers here in this church are linked together, not just because we reside here at this chapel in, in Warren Valley. It's the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of a family. We're part of this local family, but we're part of the greater family of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, I'm sure of this. Hear the confidence. I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. Paul thought so deeply about these people, so frequently for these people, he saw God in them, and he was passionate about that. What are you thinking frequently about? For some of us, we we nurture lovelessness in our heart. We nurture bitterness. For some of us, and I got one finger out, three fingers point back, I have been tempted to have the, the, the smallest slight become the biggest thing in my heart and life. The smallest grievance becomes the biggest thing. And I often say to people that it is impossible for somebody to sin against you as much as you will sin against God. And God, if you are in Christ, has forgiven you everything. And so what Paul was able to do was to do this. He was able to see Christ in his glory. Not I, but Christ. He saw the glory of Christ, and that dominated his thinking. That God, if God could forgive me for everything that I've done, and he thinks of me in love and in security, and he sees me as accepted in his sight, if I could think deeply about that and frequently about that, that should pour that out to thinking frequently and deeply for one another. But Paul moved from there, from his thinking frequently to feeling deeply. In verse 7, he says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you who all, once again, because I hold you in my heart. Paul says, in essence, I yearn for you. I love you. I hold you in my heart. It's, it's this thanksgiving. It's this idea of what is deep inside of him were these people whether it's the people of Cambodia or the people of China or the people of different places where you are um, desiring, where you're ministering to, or maybe it's the person in your town or maybe it's the person next door to you. Who is it that is deep in your heart? Well, Paul saw these Philippian believers as deep in his heart. And he says that I am in essence doing this. Look at me in verse um, seven, uh, 8. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you. It is almost as if he is calling God and saying, God, I am standing as a witness before you. I'm asking you to expose my heart to this congregation because they can't see my heart. God, show them my heart and see in my heart a deep love and affection for this body. 
I, I ask you for, for your wife or for your husband or for your child or for your mom or your dad, your friend, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, the coworker, what is it that you think frequently about? And that's going to influence you to feel deeply for them. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus. He uses this word long, and it talks about this deep desire. It talks about this affection. It actually talks about, I think Doug had mentioned this before, it talks about the, the entrails, the internal mechanism of who I am and what's going on within me. It was a total emotion from deep within. You, you ever notice that when you get really emotional, at least for me, my stomach kind of acts up, right? Does that ever happen to you? It's like you can feel it like in the pit of your stomach. Well, that's what Paul is saying. I can almost feel it deep within my love for you. So he thought frequently, he felt deeply. Why did he feel deeply? Because they were supporting him in his ministry. He is yearning for them. He is longing for them. He has a great compassion for them. But that led to thinking frequently, feeling deeply, led to the prayer that I want to focus on this morning. He prayed earnestly for them. He said, here's my prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you may approve of what is excellent so be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul moved from thanksgiving for these people because he was thinking frequently about them. He was feeling deeply and now it's moved to the petition. Here's the petition. This is what I am praying for you as a congregation. This is what we should be praying for our spouses. This is what we should be praying for our children. This is what we should be praying in our families. This is what we should be praying about this chapel. Two things. That we grow in love and that we grow in fruit. That if we are growing in love, deep love, discernible love, real love, if this congregation becomes a congregation of lovers, and then this congregation becomes a congregation of fruitful people, we're going to bring glory and praise to God. And that people are going to know God because of that. This, Paul, this letter um, prayer resembles what we saw in Colossians, Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, he said, And so, from the day you've heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, hear it bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. If he heard the parallel themes there, there was there was knowledge and there was love and there was fruitfulness and it led to praise and joy. Those same themes that Paul prayed for the Colossian believers, he's praying for the Philippian believers and we as a pastoral staff and elder staff are praying for you that we would see these in our lives. So there are two basic uh, petitions that I want you to consider this morning. It's a prayer that there be a loving light, a prayer for a loving life and secondly, a prayer for a fruitful life. So let's start with the prayer for a loving life. What, what in the world is love? You know, it's interesting that when you think about the world, the world uses this word love, and I love ice cream, I love coffee ice cream, I love the Yankees, I love the New York football giants, and they just flip that around pretty easy, right? 
love, right? That's not the type of love that Paul's talking about. You know that. Paul is talking about a love that is a self-sacrificial type of love, a, a, a mutually connected type of love. It is a love that goes deeper than just my likes. It goes deeper than just my fleeting emotions. It goes deep into a person's heart and life. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, you're familiar with this passage, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Or how about in Ephesians? This is the call for us as husbands. It says, husbands, love your wife as what? As Christ loved the church. And he gave himself. Can you hear it? That there's a sacrificial aspect to love. It should be an overflow of sacrificial love in our lives. One author defined love this way. I really like this definition. He said it this way, that biblical love is the self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one that is loved. I really like that. Biblical love is the self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in the seeking of the highest good of the one that is loved. So love is not a vague tolerance. Today, today, love would be defined as tolerance or acceptance, that I'll accept whatever you do, I'll agree with ever, whatever you do. That's not real love. Love has to be a balance of grace and truth. It needs to be full of grace and full of truth, that if I truly love you and if you're going the wrong path, I need to be wise in helping you to see that you're going off line. Acceptance of whatever lifestyle people have doesn't mean real love. Love becomings means God. It flows from God. True love is a divine love. If you recognize that Paul started with Christ's love for us and then his love for others, it's fueled by God's love. Love is a, a, a choice. It is part of my will. You know, there are times where I have to do loving actions that go against the things that I feel. You ever do that? It's a choice. Love is not just from God. It's not just a choice, but it is sacrificial. Love is also active. What does 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 13 say? Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not easily angered. It is not proud. It does not keep a record of wrongs. And over and over again, you will see the aspect of love is active. Love is from God. Love is a choice. Love is not impulsive. Love is sacrificial. Love is active. Love is not based on my attraction to you. There are going to be some people in this body of believers that you're going to be more attracted to, and there are going to be some people in this body of believers that you're going to be less attractive to. But love is not based on my attraction. Love is based on my choice and what God has done for me in Christ and what he wants to do through me in Christ. What happens if a body of believers recognizes that love is for every single person, that no matter who you are, that God wants to love these people through you. That's why God could say, I want you to even love your enemy. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. And love is for the good of others. In uh, Romans chapter 12, Paul said this, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. 
Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to doing what is honorable in the sight of all. What Paul was saying is, in essence is this, that your love as a community of believers should be gospel driven because of what God has done for us in Christ and then what God has done in our lives because of Christ, it should flow out of our lives in character qualities for others. Is that your love? We say here at the chapel that uh, God changes us through vital relationships. You probably ask me, James, why in the world do you always bring that up? Because we don't get it right. We forget what we should remember. We remember what we should forget over and over again. I hear relationship and then I will walk out of here and I will find myself slighted by somebody. You will walk out of this congregation and you will get into a car and get into arguments with your spouse or your children. Why? Because we forget about relationship and gospel. We forget it. And we need to hear over and over again that you're going to be changed by vital relationships in your life. See, love is driven by relationships. Jesus said that um, the most important relationship is vertical, right? We need a relationship with him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that is in me can bear much fruit, but without me you can do what? Nothing. We need that vital relationship with God because I will only love you truly if Christ is loving you through me. So I need a vital relationship vertically, which is going to lead to a vital relationship horizontally. In Genesis, it says this, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper. I love this passage in Ecclesiastes. It says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who was alone when he falls and has no other one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how could one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There is a vital relationship that we need vertically with Christ, but there's a vital relationship that we need in this congregation horizontally. And Paul is praying that this congregation become a congregation of lovers. Lovers who are passionate about Christ and passionate about one another. Real change is going to take place in the context of relationships, brother and sisters. If we don't make covenant relationships with one another, this congregation will not grow. And I'm not talking about numerically, I'm talking about spiritually. That this congregate, your family will not grow if you do not become a deep lover of Christ and a deep lover of your spouse or your children. If you're harboring stuff in your heart and your life, that's going to hinder you. God wants to do something radical in you. God wants to take away selfishness and he wants to make you like Christ. What an amazing thing he wants to do. He says here in verse 9, 
I'm praying that your love abound more and more. He prays for increasing love. I like this phrase, abound. It's, it means to be present in abundance. But Paul doesn't stop there because Paul gets flowery with, with his words. He doesn't just say abounding love. He says, I want your love to abound. And then he says, actually in the Greek, it goes still more and more. So more would be enough. He could say abound, right? But that would be enough, but it's not enough. Paul says, I want your love to abound still more. And then I don't want your love just to abound still more and more. Basically, he's saying, I want this congregation to be so saturated with the love of Christ that it becomes so saturating with the love of Christ out of your lives, abounding more and more. Is that your life? Do we love that way? Now, how do we love that way? He says here in verse 9, that your love is bound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We need knowledge. We need discernment in order to love. We need a perception. We need, we need to be able to understand what is lovely and what is not. We need to know what is right versus what is wrong. We know truth from error, good from evil, wise from foolish, helpful from harmful. We, know, we need to know what is timely versus untimely. We need to know that. It's not enough just to be able to love. I'd be able to need to know you and to be able to love you deeply. You know, sometimes if we think about our prayers, our prayers oftentimes, and if you've been seeing these prayers of Paul, you can see that he doesn't tend to do this. He doesn't oftentimes pray for those temporal things, right? What was he praying for? He is praying for deep, eternal, spiritual things in people's lives. I was trying to think about what is it about Christ that made sinners want to be around Christ? You ever think about that? What was it about Christ's life that made a person who's a prostitute want to be around Jesus? What made it about Christ's life that people would break into a house to bring their friend to him? What is it about Christ that this person could go down and wash his feet and wipe his feet with their hands? What was it about sinners? What was it about that little guy up on the tree that Jesus would go over to his house? What is it about Christ? He's the most holy one ever that lived, but he's also the most gracious and the most loving and the most kind. There are some sinners that don't want to walk into churches today because they're feeling like they're going to be judged. They feel like they're going to be condemned. There are going to be some people that probably look into relationships with some of you that say, I don't want to be in a relationship with that person because all they're going to do is just condemn me, condemn me, condemn me. And then there's some of you that have such gracious relationships with others and loving relationships with others, but you never tell them the truth. And there was something about Jesus that was radically different that he wants to do in your life. He wants to make you a person of grace and truth that discernible love as to knowing that person deeply and to be able to tell the truth to that person because you are in relationship with them, vital relationship one with another. Some truth-oriented Christians are really good at studying scripture and theology, but they're quick to judge and slow to forgive. Some grace-oriented Christians are really great with love and forgiveness, but they're really cruddy when it comes to truth and nobody stands 
People were drawn to Christ because they could see grace. His grace was compelling. His grace was amazing. His grace was drawing. There was something about Jesus that drew people to him. I think it was because of the gospel. The gospel was saturating Christ's life. Jesus was um, at the end. He was going to be hounded by Pharisees. He was going to be betrayed by his friends. He was going to be rejected by the majority of his disciples. He's going to be put on trial, a mock trial. The law that he created is now going to be held against him wrongly. He's going to stand before people that are supposed to be the religious community, and he's going to stand before the political community. They are going to beat him mercilessly. They're going to ram thorns on his head. They're going to nail him to a cross. He's going to be there suffocating just to breathe. He needs to lift up off the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet just to breathe. And what comes out of his mouth is is love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Mom, here's your son. Son, here's your mom. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Do you hear the love that was coming out of his life? That's what drew people to Christ. Is that what draws you to him? Not only is this supposed to be a discernible love, this needs to be an increasing love. It needs to be abounding more and more. Is that the type of love that we're showing? The third thing I want you to consider, not only is it a discernible love and not only is it an increasing love, but it is a love that is a love that is a characteristic of truth, moral purity in your life, fruitfulness. See, Paul is praying for a loving life in these people, but he's also praying for a fruitful life in these people. Why? Here it is in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so that you may be pure and blameless for Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first thing that fruitfulness must have in our lives is this. We need to have proper priorities in our lives. My priorities need to be based on not just what is good, but what is best. See, what real discerning love is this. God can take what is good and he can help you to see what is truly best in your life. What would be truly best? Fruitfulness involves integrity. He says, in order that you may be sincere and blameless. He's looking at your heart. God is looking at your heart, not simply your actions, but he's looking at your heart and he's saying, is this heart sold out to me? A person who is fruitful is going to be looking at the eternal perspective, the coming of Jesus Christ, that there's going to be a day when I'm going to see Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to look at him face to face and I want my life to count for him. But the big thing here is this, that fruit bearing ultimately comes because of Jesus Christ. See, I can't, you can't, he can. God wants to produce a fruit in your life So where does this fruit come from? I believe it comes from Christ. It comes from increasingly loving Christ and increasingly obeying Christ. Kind of like a healthy tree. A healthy tree is going to bear good fruit. An unhealthy tree is not. You will know the quality of that tree by its fruit. So I'm asking you to look at your own life and look at the fruit that is coming out of your life. Is the fruit that's coming out of your life of the quality and character of Christ? 
So where does the fruit come from? I think I've already told you. What do you think deeply about and frequently about? See, if what you think frequently about and deeply about, that's going to come out in what you feel deeply about. That's going to come out in how you live. Think, feel, live. And Paul was saying this, I want you to know that what comes out of my heart and life is a byproduct of what is deeply put in there by God. So what kind of thoughts do you have? What kind of ways do you speak? What kind of actions that you do? I told you that to truly love, love, love somebody, you need to know them. But to truly love somebody and be fruitful, you need to be able to speak to them as well. Do you bear fruit and truth in your relationships? Do you think about what it is that this person really needs to hear and then do you try to think of ways that you could communicate that to them? Do you think about ways that God can use you to be helpful in another person's life? The gospel is, is wonderful examples of how Christ had relationships with other people, questions and concerns and relational things where he was working in and through their lives Many examples of how Christ helped people to see the truth. So speaking the truth in love is so important. It's not making grand pronouncements. It is helping people see life clearly. But then I need to help people do the things that they need to do. So I wonder what your passion is. Paul's passion was, I want you to think frequently. Paul's passion was, I want you to feel deeply. And Paul's passion is that I want you to pray earnestly. And I want you to do that, why? All for the glory of, and praise of God. Is that your aim? See, the chief end of our lives is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. Can you commit with me that we become a gospel community that is committed to the gospel? Because it's through the gospel that we have peace. You remember in Romans 5, it says this. Therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have what? Peace with God. That, that peace that we have in our lives is the fact that the gospel has become part of our lives. So are we committed to the gospel? Are we committed that through the gospel we have peace with God? Do you experience the peace of God in your lives? Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. God wants to give you peace with him, and then he wants to give you the peace of him. In Philippians 4, he says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So do you pray for one another that there was a loving life? You pray for one another that they have a fruitful life. See, if the gospel becomes central in our lives, I think we can make some commitments to one another as a community of believers. I think we can make a commitment that I'm going to try to reconcile relationship issues with you. That if I got a problem with you because God reconciled himself, us with himself, I should be working on reconciliation with you. I think that if we are committed to the gospel, we should be committed to marriage and family and protecting our children. I think that if we're committed to the gospel, I should be committed to speaking in a way that is honoring of God. 
I think if we're committed to the gospel, I should be willing to put myself under authority and to listen to people and to learn from them. I think that if I am committed to the gospel, that I am going to want to offer and grow in discipleship and put myself in a community of believers where I can grow to become more and more like Christ. And I would hope that um, if the gospel becomes central in your lives and you call this your church home, that you would want to become a member of this believing body. So let me close with this. Paul thought frequently, he felt deeply, he prayed earnestly. Paul had a pastor's heart. His heart was about joy. When he thought about those people, it was about joy. He said, remember, I th- I th- every time I think of you, I remember you with joy. Why? Because you're linked to me in partnership. He saw the gospel as central in their lives, and the gospel brought joy to him, and he knew it was going to be joy in other people's lives. You know what was amazing about Paul? is In Philippians 2, he said the congregation of believers completed his joy. Can you imagine that as a pastor to be able to see a congregation of believers who are growing in love and growing in fruitfulness, that is a joy for a pastoral staff. That is a joy for people that are leading and growing. Paul says that you became my joy and my crown. Paul said this, that in essence, you as a loving community and you as a fruitful community become a mark of my life. As a husband... As a father, a mark of my life will be how loving my family is and how fruitful my family is. As a pastor, a mark of our community will be how loving and fruitful we are. Paul was thankful that they gave a gift to him at the end, but what he was more thankful for was that gift was to the glory of God and praise of God. Christ alone is the all-satisfying gift. Paul knew that. So I ask you today, what's your passion? If I were to ask you what you think about, what do you think about frequently? Do you think frequently about, um, about Christ and what he's done for you? Do you feel deeply for Christ and do you feel deeply for others? Do you pray earnestly for others? Spiritual maturity happens when Christians grow in discerning love that their godly lives bring glory to God. I think that's what it comes down to. That if I'm growing in maturity, I will be growing in discerning love, I will be living a godly life, and that will bring praise and glory to God. Is that your passion today? Our greatest hope, our greatest joy, our greatest peace, our greatest love, is found in one person and one person alone is Christ. Paul knew that. And Paul knew that in his life and he wanted people to know that. This pastoral staff wants this congregation to become a believing, believing community of people that are growing in love, growing in fruitfulness so that we can bring glory to God. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, 
that in that grace that you have poured out your son for us. Lord Jesus, I can't even thank you enough for what you've done for me and for us. You lived a life we could never live. You died a death in our place. You rose victoriously from the grave. Lord Jesus, you bore your Father's wrath for all of our sin. Amazing love. Thank you for the peace that you give us in Christ as well. That we are at peace with you and we have peace of God in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray deeply that there would be peace in relationships today. Father, if there's one person here in this room right now who doesn't feel at peace with you, I pray that you would draw them to you. Open their eyes and open their hearts to the beauty of your son and their need for him. But Father, if there is horizontal lack of peace here in this room, Father, I pray that we would not leave this room today until we make it right. And help us to start thinking frequently of the glory of Christ. Help us to start feeling deeply for Christ and others. And help us to pray earnestly for others. Help us to grow in love and help us to grow in fruitfulness. And help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.